Welcome back to the Neural Farm Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Colby Burns, Doctor of Pharmacy, and I'm here with a very special guest joining us today. We are joined by Ben Malcolm. Uh, he is the founder of Spirit Pharmacist. A lot of you probably already know Spirit Pharmacist. I don't even know if I need to do a formal introduction, but if you haven't heard of Spirit Pharmacist, it provides um, counseling and support for those on psychedelic-assisted therapies looking for more information on drug interactions and resources and references, full course libraries, very good reference. I would highly recommend him. And uh, I'm very glad he took the time to join us today on the podcast. Uh, ben, welcome. It's really great to be here, Colby. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm glad to see you here. And uh, you are in Costa Rica, correct? That's where I am. I've been here for about two years now, a little over. How's the uh, winter going down there for the rest of us dealing with snow and ice here in the United States? It's not. <laughs> it's high season, which means it's dry, hot, and relatively dusty and windy down here by the coast. I think people will take that, though, uh, blowing dust over blowing snow. But uh, it might be a matter of preference. <laughs> like most things, but I prefer the sunshine. Yeah. Well, let's get started with uh, the interview process here and just tell us a little bit about yourself and your backgrounds and uh, what led you to start the Spirit Pharmacist and be where you are today. Yeah, I mean, I think the most concise answer that I would say, like at this point is like I was just kind of made for this, this in a, in a lot of ways, but it took me a long time to realize that or, or figure that out. I, I think so. I'm trained as a psychiatric pharmacist, meaning that I did my doctorate of, of pharmacy, like a four year doctorate program in pharmacy school. Then in a couple of years of postgraduate residencies, I did one in a hospital, uh, just in general acute care relating to pharmacy. And in his second year in psychiatric pharmacy at UCSD Health. And I taught psychiatric pharmacy at the College of Pharmacy for almost five years before doing this like 100% entrepreneurial type of uh, venture that, that I have now. But honestly, like predating any of the kind of like educational path in, in pharmacy, I just had, you know, a really intellectual as you know, sort of experiential interest in psychedelics. So I felt like they, they really kind of guided my career path without a real understanding that they were going to be part of my career at the end of the day. But by the time I'd done that education, uh, the research with psychedelics and the excitement around their medical use had really picked up enough steam to the point where there was something for a pharmacist to really kind of stand on as far as an evidence base and educate people uh, about. And at that point, I was just kind of like, you know, it married so many of my interests and kind of skill sets together, teaching and academia. Um, I, I really enjoy that kind of piece, the sort of like literature synthesis and academic blogging that I've been doing in my in my sites and just my kind of like deepest interests and passions that I had you know, pre-existing and for a very long time, it, um, it all kind of came together in the, in this opportunity that I have to do what I do now. Very organic then that's, that's pretty awesome. Given your background, you know, in psychiatric pharmacy and in the clinical space, um, you know, these studies, I guess, in theogens are now starting to be more medically accepted and used, and we don't have clinical guidelines, I guess, yet that kind of lay out what the role or place in therapy is for um, 
psychedelics where you would try psilocybin, you know, as a second line after failing fluoxetine or, or whatnot. Um, I guess I want to ask, where do you see them fitting alongside conventional therapy in the treatment of patients with major depression or PTSD? Well, psychedelics, I mean, three of them now, like, like ketamine or, or S-ketamine as bravado has, has been medically approved, but it had an FDA breakthrough designation in its kind of uh, approval or trial process. And now two others, psilocybin from psychedelic mushrooms and then uh, MDMA are also been given these breakthrough designations, which essentially means that the existing data and information suggests that there's an, a major advantage over existing treatment options or that they're kind of breakthroughs for illnesses that we don't necessarily have wonderful treatment options for. So it's essentially qualifying them for an expedited review process. And to me, this indicates that there's a high degree of likelihood um, that psychedelic therapies will be at least non-inferior, if not have some edges or advantages over traditional types of uh, psychiatric medications. Where they fit in the guidelines will be an interesting thing to kind of see. And I think that it's going to be a, a kind of a longer process where we need more information about longer term outcomes and what maybe makes sense from like a resource based perspective. I think that there's some kind of pharmacoeconomic realities of how our healthcare system works that may preclude putting something like MDMA assisted therapy that it's got a higher price tag that involves a lot of human touch and therapy kind of intervention ahead of something else that maybe is much cheaper, kind of like pennies on the dollar, but is more of a daily uh, prescription medication taking taking them. Um, you know, the, the studies right now for MDMA, it's treatment refractory PTSD. For psilocybin, it's treatment refractory depression. So if I was an insurance company, I would probably be sort of thinking, oh, that's a pre-authorization, that's a step therapy, that's a try the other things to prove that you're refractory and then maybe you qualify for, for that kind of thing. So I, I sort of think that's how the insurance companies are gonna kind of initially structure things and they're not really gonna be going out on a limb to make sure they pay for everyone that wants MDMA assisted therapy. But I tell you, I think that there's also an ethical conundrum here that really needs to be dealt with, for example, uh, that, that MDMA-assisted therapy for, for PTSD, the first-line medications, SSRIs like sertraline or paroxetine, seem to directly inhibit the effects of MDMA and probably the effectiveness of MDMA-assisted therapy. So perhaps this question is different than other sorts of questions where maybe the first and second-line therapies don't really conflict with one another. Right. If you try atypical antipsychotics for your bipolar condition and they fail, the atypical antipsychotic did not directly inhibit your ability for a different type of mood stabilizer to work. Whereas in this case, it really may or it really does. Right. So I think that for prescribers, it really kind of creates a, a, an ethical conundrum, because if I had a person that was maybe three or four months out from a traumatic incident, and we're calling it PTSD for the first time instead of an acute stress reaction. You know, do I want to start first line guideline recommended therapies that have an efficacy rate of 25 to 30% knowing that 70% of the time it's not gonna bring the result that the person wants. Whereas I've got this other intervention over here where it's three MDMA sessions spaced a month apart, 
might have something more like a 60 to 80% success rate for, for the person. And if I put them on that, it could cause some level of physical dependence. It could make tapering and stopping it difficulty difficult. The probability of it working in the first place is lower. So it's just a different situation because I think some of the first line guideline recommended therapies directly shoot the person in the foot as far as being able to quickly and safely access the sort of treatments that are coming down the pipeline as refractory breakthrough therapies. That is a challenge. And, you know, when we look at some of the data, for example, with MDMA assisted therapy that came from the MAP one and two trials and the FDA will weigh in probably by the end of 2024 is expected to make a decision on MDMA. The data is in, it's in their court now. The data has been submitted from MAPS uh, or Lycos Therapeutics. They're now calling themselves not MAPS PBC anymore, but uh, that's another story. Um, but yeah, the, the ball's in their court. And I, I agree with you on some of the therapies could actually conflict with um, psychedelic assist therapy, some of the traditional therapies. I know one issue, I don't know, maybe because I'm not as well-versed in the psychiatric community, um, there's still some resistance among prescribers to recommend psychedelics or talk about them. And I wonder if that will change once legalization changes. But uh, what do you think are some of the barriers that have to be overcome? Will the data and time just take care of itself? Or is there going to always be this element of sort of resistance or reluctance to prescribe them or recommend them? D, all of the above. <laughs> I mean, I think some of the biggest barriers, right, is prohibition and the, and the legal status, right? That's one barrier in and of itself. Um, but I think another barrier is the lack of clinical data or information. I think it's fairly a traditional for a prescriber or a doctor to start recommending drugs that are investigational or are in a pipeline ahead of, ahead of approval. I mean, that's not a typical kind of, of scenario anyway, right? So I think that, you know, a lot of prescribers that are, you know, taking the responsibility of the, the, the paper and prescribing pad are going to be waiting until the drug is approved. And after that time, I think a lot of savvy prescribers, honestly, wait a few years and look at post-marketing surveillance data before they start going all in on a new treatment for their, their, their patients. You know, there's going to be some cases that have tried a lot of different stuff. And it sort of seems like, man, like maybe we really should try this. And then there's going to be a lot of cases that haven't tried all of the options before. And, you, you know, it was part of my psychiatric pharmacy training. It's kind of like, okay, the FDA approved some new psychiatric medication. Uh, you probably shouldn't be in a huge rush to start using that on just about every person that could be a candidate for it. You should probably kind of hang with some of the traditional options for some period of time and wait for some of the post-marketing reporting to, to come out because there's a realization that okay, approval and going through phase three trials literally means that they tested it in a couple hundred persons. You know, maybe we should wait until it's, we've got some post-marketing reports on a couple thousand persons before we really sort of think about what we want to do with it overall. Um, I think this is just assuming that whoever is evaluating this information truly is like looking to evaluate the information and is somebody that's just sort of open to whatever is coming out of the investigational pipeline as being a possibility for their patients. I think that there is going to be a long-standing stigma around strong psychoactives and psychedelics, even with a medical approval and even with 
maybe a formal end to their illicit status or straight up uh, prohibition that is going to persist for a while. And with higher levels of utilization, we probably will start to see some more zebra, you know, not common, but rare types of adverse events that may give some people some adequate level of, of pause or thinking through the candidacy of, of certain persons. So there's going to be a range. And I mean, I know plenty of physicians and psychiatrists that are happy to have conversations about these options now. And I know some that are open to the ideas, but are not going to be saying stuff like, I think you should do that for some period of time. They're waiting. And I know some that, you know, you start bringing up psilocybin, they say, oh, the dangerous hallucinogen <laughs> abuse, please stay, you know, 10 feet away from that. What are you crazy? You're going to hurt yourself. Right. And that's just the way it is. And I think that's the way with a lot of different medications. Right. I think that there's some doctors that don't really have much issue prescribing benzodiazepines and maybe have quite a few patients that responsibly use it and are stable on it and report that it helps their anxiety conditions. And some doctors themselves or have seen sort of horror stories around habituation, substance use disorder problems, withdrawal reactions to the point where they're extremely hesitant to prescribe any dose of a benzodiazepine to a person under almost any circumstance. So every provider kind of has their own thoughts and biases outside of what guidelines recommend anyway. And psychedelics are certainly no exception. That's true. I'm, I'm going to play devil's advocate here though, and say there, there is sure. one difference between, I think, psychedelic therapies, you know, especially psilocybin and Ibogaine, ayahuasca and traditional therapies that hit the market is that nobody tried sertraline except in a clinical trial before it was FDA approved. Um, nobody was like, Hey, I got this sertraline for you, you know, try it. Th that was something that was yeah. manufactured in a lab yeah. and went through the trial process and reached the market. Um, but we have all this antidotal data on people who've used psilocybin, who've used Ibogaine. Um, of course, that yeah. wasn't in a medically supervised setting. So this kind of ties into the question I want to ask the future too. Where do you see psychedelic uh, therapy? Do you see it as a strictly medical model? Um, and how should we seriously take this antidotal data? Like, does this deserve to be taking consideration or should we say again this is anecdotal data um doesn't apply in a medical setting we can't use it you know we need actual clinical data oh well first of all i think that you're you're 100 correct is that the difference between psychedelics and any other drug that's coming through a pipeline is that they're not new entities mm -hmm. right like most you know this isn't FK one, two, three CB invented in whatever lab 10 years ago, first tested on a rodent seven years ago, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Some of these are entities that have been around for millennia and been used by humans for very, very long sorts of, of, of periods of time. And I think that that experience frankly counts. And, um, I do think that observational data is part of the data. Um, does it have different methodologic limitations than clinical trials? Is it utilized a little bit differently than clinical trials? Absolutely. But, you know, to, to paint the fullest picture of anything, you really have to look at what's happening out there in the real world and observational data and sort of realize that, yeah, the clinical trial is a, it's a gold standard for testing something against a placebo. I'm not sure it's the gold standard for generalizing things to the real world because oftentimes the, 
the external validity is questionable because of the inclusion exclusion criteria and, and, and things like that. So the observational data to me oftentimes mimics sort of what people are actually doing in the, the real world better than the, the clinical trials. But as far as kind of like uh, safety information, um, efficacy information for psychiatric illnesses with this specific kind of therapy modality, that clinical data is absolutely crucial and, and important. I don't see psychedelics ending up purely in a medical kind of model. And I think the train has actually left the station in, in that regard. I think that you have um, too much an interest in decriminalization that's occurred through some cities and an entire state, the state of Oregon has decriminalized all drugs at this point in time and actually created a legalized model around psilocybin administration that is functioning today, right? There are licensed people in legally recognized state centers that are administering psilocybin to people today. Uh, Colorado's passed the Natural Health Medicines Act, similar sort of spirit and intention to Oregon they're going to start with psilocybin, but not end there. There's other naturally occurring psychedelics that they'll be rolling out over a, a period of, of years in a um, more psycho-spiritual supervised kind of model. So it's not medical, right? But it is a controlled type of environment or, or setting. And then I think that there's also a religious freedom movement that's gaining traction and ground. There's a few groups that have successfully petitioned the DEA, the Native American Church, the UDV, the Santo Daime. And you have a lot of people that are taking the legal precedent of those things and kind of running with it and starting their own churches. And there probably is going to be kind of a shakedown, a reckoning the same way that we saw with, with cannabis and some um, of the federal raids and then Congress's response with um, the amendment that essentially prohibited the DEA from spending money on busting the states. And so there is going to be, I think, this kind of um, legal patchwork of psychedelics that expands over the United States in the next 20 years or so. And ultimately, we're going to end up with some legal psycho-spiritual use, some decriminalized use, some religious freedom use, and some medical use. Yeah, <clears throat> I'd like to say it would happen faster than 20 years, but I guess seeing our experience with cannabis, perhaps that is a realistic timeline of how, how long, you know, uh, Washington legalized marijuana essentially in 2012, you know, 12 years ago, and yet there's still some states that, and the federal government hasn't made a decision yet. So it could take 20 years, you're right. <laughs> well, I think California was the first state that went medical in 1996, right? So we're 28 years later, and there are still states that mm -hmm. don't have medical cannabis programs. You know, the states that do have medical programs, it's all the way from incredibly restrictive and hard to access to very laissez-faire yeah. and just walk into whatever and here's your recommendation and you go on your way. Um, there was an analysis that came out in the in JAMA in 2023 that looked specifically at this and that was basically a prediction of how psychedelics will be legalized and what time frame and it really was a sort of a 15 to 20 year time frame and they did predict something kind of akin to what we've seen with with cannabis which i thought was a huge statement from jama it wasn't uh if it gets legalized but hey this is the timeline of when like this is kind of coming down the pike and we've got to sort of prepare for it and in that article they were talking about preparation not solely for medical contexts either which 
I think when you have like the American medical establishment saying, hey, guys, this is going to happen over the next 10 to 20 years. We better get ready for it. Because three years ago, like in 2020 in the pandemic, the only things that they would print would be stuff like careful with ketamine. There's there's still some of that, especially with Matt Perry. <laughs> yeah, there is still some of that. There There is still some of that for sure. Uh, and you should be careful with it. But at the same time, well, yeah, now there's trials demonstrating it is at least non-inferior, may have an edge to ECT, wow. which has been the gold standard for refractory depression for probably almost a century, right? So it's sort of like, man, people are questioning if ECT is the thing for refractory depression. Maybe it's ketamine now, right? I think that that was in the New England Journal this last year in 2023 now. So we're seeing sort of like major swings in attitudes from some of, I would say, the the journals that represent the institution. Yeah. yeah, I I'll have to find that article. Very very thoughtful analysis, and uh, things take time. But you're right. Maybe maybe it'll be faster than we think, or certainly there's going to be steps along the process. And some states will be slower to adopt than others, probably in the South. But that's the way that's the way America works. Yeah, I mean that's the beauty of America in a lot of ways, right? Is you've got the federal legislation, you've got the states' legislation. The states get to be the kind of hmm, experimental grounds for new laws. And through having different psychedelic programs in different states, we're going to get a better idea of exactly how they may be regulated in a way that gives the most people the most access and the most liberties in doing what they want to do. Well, safeguarding public health and, you know, individual psychologic stability. Yeah, we've been in this dark prohibition zone. The pendulum, thank God, is swinging away from there. But, you know, psychedelic free-for-all 24-7 with absolutely no education about it except for it's dangerous and stay away for the last 50 years. You may want some intermediate steps there. Hopefully medical schools and pharmacy schools and nursing schools will get some education too. You know, I know as part of my curriculum, we learned, we had one lecture on the endocannabinoid system and nothing about any other, you know, ketamine or yeah. psilocybin or none of this stuff was mentioned. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, again, it like, I mean, I haven't taught in academia now for over, over three years, but I mean, I would say like a few things I learned in academia were that, the curriculum is packed to the gills and there's precisely zero years now or in the future where there's going to be less FDA approved drugs on the market than there are. So the number of drugs just keeps going up and up and up. Our uh, knowledge of different types of genetics, specialty treatments, antibodies, rare diseases, things like that increases, increases, increases. And we're expecting students to learn it all in four years right and so it's really difficult to actually add something to a curriculum without taking something else out and there's just sorts of i would say bureaucratic kinds of thoughts on what should be in a curriculum you know there's guidelines from pharmacy accrediting bodies and if you're a pharmacy school you're going to pay attention to what they have to say right because you want to be accredited um, about what should be in the curriculum and about how many curricular hours should be spent. And when it's a non-approved drug that's thought of as an illicit entity, you don't have much space for it except in a substance use disorder kind of lecture. 
But as soon as it gets approved, even if it's approved for refractory types of things, I think it creates room for specialty electives in psychiatry that maybe start to, to touch on that more. I think it creates room in a curriculum to when you get to your psychiatric block to start thinking about, okay, well, I'm going to mention MDMA when I talk about stimulant use disorders. I'm going to mention MDMA when I talk about um, PTSD therapeutics, and we can have a much more like objective and balanced conversation about what that drug entity is instead of this kind of prohibition conversation about, about what it is. So I agree, like, and I say this is a, that, you know, before we have a renaissance in psychedelic use, we're going to need a renaissance in psychedelic education. And it really does need to start at the kind of schooling level into residency training and clinicians, right? And these things kind of need to be happening simultaneously. CE programs rolled out to existing kind of prescribers and, and different types of clinicians and, and providers at the same time, to the extent possible, starting to offer students with an interest, right? some sort of way that they can delve deeper into this kind of topic and start getting specialized knowledge because it is specialized knowledge. And, you know, if you have a class of 100 people, what percent will be a psychiatric pharmacist? One to two percent of those sorts of people. What group of those psychiatric pharmacists are going to want to specialize in psychedelics? You know, some subpopulation of that. Right. So to sort of like psychedelics are amazing let's just front and center in every curriculum it's just kind of like actually the balance of things in medicine overall probably doesn't necessitate that but for learners that are interested we need to start creating opportunities definitely so i want to pivot a little bit <clears throat> since you already mentioned substance use disorder um I'm curious about what your thoughts are on microdosing, whether microdosing can help for patients with substance use disorder. I know I've read some of your content, you talk about microdosing to help with SSRI tapering and withdrawal, um, helps for some of the withdrawal, I should say prevent withdrawal, helps some of the withdrawal effects. But uh, again, what are your what are your thoughts around microdosing? For substance use disorder specifically? Or... Yeah, substance, so, well, substance use disorder first, yeah. Yeah. Not a whole lot of thoughts because there's just not a lot, a whole lot of information there. Uh, I actually haven't even really seen many of the anecdotal surveys or research asking persons about, you know, how their other types of substance uses with alcohol or cannabis or benzodiazepines or whatever is actually kind of shifting and changing as they, they microdose. It seems like when you look at those surveys, the demographics are persons that tend to use more cannabis in their life and less kind of pharmaceutical medications overall. There's a bit of a reporting bias, I guess, is what I'm saying that I think you can just glean straight from demographics in those in those surveys. Um, when you look at clinical data for microdosing, it sort of looks like miniature high for the day, like the person feels an elevated baseline on that day. But even the day after the microdosing, it's kind of back to normal. Uh, I don't think of psychedelics as addictive substances per se, um, but they're strong psychoactives that produce almost rapid types of effects. And that those kinds of similarities, I think there is overlap with other types of, of controlled substances out there. So personally, I wouldn't be super bullish on microdosing for substance use disorders at, at this point in, in time. I think that I consider psychedelics, whether it be 
a course of microdosing coupled with some mindful sorts of therapeutic goals or psychedelic assisted therapy sessions. I think a lot of the times is that it offers a person a potential for change, um, maybe even serves as a catalyst for, for change. But if a person's just going to start microdosing and think, God, maybe that will just stop my drinking, but there's no accountability. There's no structure to it. Um, the chances of them stopping drinking with that is probably not that high overall. So because microdosing I see is the most laissez-faire as far as like the set and setting goes, it's more or less taking small doses and, you know, kind of going on with a person's life. I think that it might have the ability to kind of fade into the backdrop or not be quite as potent as far as offering the aha moments, the transformational kind of breakthroughs, like the realizations that I can't continue doing this sort of anymore. Um, whereas I think the psychedelic assisted therapy really offers some of that stuff. But would I rule out that, hey, if a person was going to enroll themselves in a eight week program that focused on staying away from tobacco after they have a quit date and they do a few weeks of lead in kind of stuff and some motivational interviewing and have a quit date planned around the time that they microdose and they've got some accountability set up. Yeah, probably the chances of working go up, but I mean, the chances of that working without microdosing is probably better than I'm going to quit smoking tomorrow. Anyway, <laughs> it makes it hard to, but, but I guess because they they produce a strong psychoactive effect rapidly. Nah, yeah, it really depends on what substance use disorder, how out of hand it is. You know, there's some persons where I would think that, okay, it's a mild to moderate kind of thing. Seems like they can almost effectively do something about it themselves for some times, for some short periods of time. They seem highly motivated for whatever reasons at this point. They've got a lot of accountability and structure set up for what they're doing. Yeah, it probably sounds like a pretty decent shot versus someone that's just out of hand with two or three other substances and thinks that adding another short acting rapid substance to that mix is going to dry all the rest of it up. It seems highly unlikely and maybe even problematic. Yeah, very good points. Very good points. Does depend on the substance and how severe their um, use of that substance is over time. Time of microdosing too um, kind of fits into microdosing, but with psychedelic assisted therapy, there's been some questions about whether somebody does need to have a sort of full trip experience to obtain the benefits, even from a therapy session. You know, ketamine. Um, we're still trying to figure out the ideal dose of ketamine, but. We know some people respond to different thresholds. Uh, do you think that having that full, you know, aha moment or trip is essential to the experience or, you know, can one obtain insights and benefits from a lower dose? I think someone can definitely obtain insights and benefits from, from lower doses. Um, at the same time, I think when a person can really achieve a big, mystical, a big spiritual experience, a big emotional breakthrough, then it oftentimes really kind of adds a lot of wind to the, the person's sails. And there's a lot of motivation to make changes or continue their kind of like therapeutic work. But I think it's fairly clear almost from different depression experiments with psilocybin is that the most common doses that you're using seem to be about 
20, 25 milligrams. But there are doses now or studies showing that 10 or 15 milligrams is enough to produce an antidepressant response. And I mean, this is sort of a maybe one to two gram of psilocybin mushroom type of dosing range, which probably is below what most people need for that kind of, I don't know, full mystical experience. So there's probably a few aspects of this that's that's helping a person. I mean, some of it could be the subjective state that they arrive at or the kinds of things that happen to them in whatever subjective state they achieve. I think some of it is neuroplasticity. So there's an enhanced ability to kind of do things differently in at least a few days afterwards, maybe some sort of anti-inflammatory effect that's that's also, you know, really functioning strongly in that kind of time frame. Um, you know, there's probably something to a series of, of sessions or kind of sequentially moving through whatever kinds of issues a person is dealing with. You know, there's the sort of integration work piece of it. The, well, we can go to the garage and inflate the flat tire, but unless we are getting all the nails, glass, pieces of rumble strip off the road as we send that car out from the garage, then the chances of it being flat and needing to go back to the garage are kind of high. Um, so yeah, I've, I mean, I guess to answer your question in a really direct kind of way, I think the ideal situation would be that a person has a pretty big subjective effect where they realize something or have some kind of spiritual insight or experience, because it does seem that a lot of benefits can flow from that. But if a person doesn't achieve that, or maybe has some very scary experiences at higher doses and they want to try lower doses, I think there's enough data to think that, yeah, you can at least get partial responses with those kinds of doses. And then frankly, I've also had plenty of reports where it's kind of like, oh, I ate mushrooms and it was disappointing. Nothing really happened to me that day, but I woke up the next morning and I took a deep breath and I did three things that I've been procrastinating on for the last four to six months. And the, the entire next week afterwards, it just seemed like the stressful decisions I could just kind of make without that same workup that I normally had. And, and so you sort of get the, the feeling that, man, maybe the neuroplasticity is working for this person. You know, maybe there is some sorts of mood uh, uplifting benefits associated with upregulation of neurotrophic factors that has nothing to do with serotonin receptors and subjective states reached. And I think 2023 was the year that really kind of fully put the serotonin to a receptor centric viewpoint of psychedelic mechanisms on the way out. Like it's like, it's certainly important. It's an important receptor. It's an important target, but, but the realization that LSD and psilocybin combined tyrosine kinase receptors linked with BDNF release at nanomolar ranges and that the neurotrophic factor upregulation can exist independently of a subjective effect, I think really kind of opens the door for questioning what part of it is neuroplasticity, what part of it is brain rewiring, what part of it is subjective experience. And I would really encourage anyone that has um, a watered down, a lackluster, maybe an experience with no effect 
to keep going through the motions of change that they had planned around their therapeutic goals and intentions afterwards and not just kind of like, ah, well, that was a wash. Let me go back to whatever and just sort of ride that off. Like, like okay, like even when not, not a lot happens, pay attention and keep going with the therapeutic program. Yeah. Very interesting insight too on the serotonin two-way receptor modality because their drug companies are going to be spending a lot of research on trying to determine what, how exactly these drugs work. And well, I just want to thank Ben Malcolm for being our guest today on the show. You know, respectful of his time and definitely his insights. Very informative discussion today. I hope everybody got something out of it at least. And Ben, if people want to know more, if people want to get a hold of you, where can they find you? So my main website is spiritpharmacist.com. You can also follow along on social media, either through Instagram or Facebook. If you search Spirit Pharmacist, you find it pretty easily. I have a LinkedIn profile. Don't post quite as often there. Um, really, I would say like either following through social media or the best way to follow along with everything I do is to join my, my email list. Um, I send communications on all of the kind of events that I'm doing, webinar workshops, new courses, different training programs. You know, if I'm interviewed in a podcast like this, I'll normally let my email list about it, know about it. Um, I send a one monthly newsletter that just kind of recaps six to seven of the most interesting articles pertaining to psychedelics that I think came out in the, in the last month. So really when people want to, I don't know, follow along and get the best of what I'm offering, the email list is, is the best way to, to do it. Uh, I've got different sorts of resources on my site. So if you go to the blog page, you'll find a lot of different free resources or maybe even links within those blogs to download other types of guides that I that I have available. I've got some webinars that are pretty affordable on specific types of, of topics. I've got some longer kind of courses in psychedelic pharmacology or antidepressant tapering. And then I also have my individual consultation practice and a member resource and support program that kind of hybridize my, my courses with my sort of individual drug information service and some discounted consultations. So yeah, all the way from I'm just browsing and would like to read through some of the resources to I would like a collaborative long-term relationship um, with Spirit Pharmacist. You can find it all at the website. All right. Well, again, thank you, Ben, and um, stay tuned for next episode. We're going to talk about uh, GLP-1 agonists, so a lot more on that for addiction. But anyways, thanks for joining us. Yeah, you should ask someone if they've come across any cases of it uh, failing to launch. We had one person, a report now, of a person that was using one of those GLP-1 agonists. They did a psilocybin experience in Oregon. Nothing happened for six hours. Then they launched on the car ride home, and those drugs caused delayed gastric emptying. It seems like a lot of the studies that are out there focus on area under the curve for things like warfarin and, oh, it doesn't shift the INR. But man, if you're talking about psychoactives where the time to max concentration may be the most important factor pharmacokinetically as far as their experience, maybe we need to look at drugs that delay gastric emptying like those. So plant a seed to see if the person's heard of <laughs> it, it, it delaying it. Cause I sure couldn't find much information about it with psychoactives. Hmm. Okay. Well, thank you. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Colby. This podcast is presented for educational and informational purposes only as licensed pharmacists. We do not advocate for the self-administration of products designed to be given only under medical supervision 
nor do we recommend for or against the use of products listed as Schedule 1 under Drug Enforcement Administration guidance, nor do we recommend using prescription-only products that have not been prescribed to you by a licensed prescriber. We assume no responsibility for any legal repercussions that may occur to the individual after the use of federally illicit substances. Thank you for listening and for your continued support of the Neural Farm podcast. Did you know we have a newsletter and blog? Go to neuralfarm.substack.com to subscribe to the newsletter and blog. We find a variety of topics around the field of alternative mental health, including one I mentioned about seasonal effectiveness disorder recently, as well as many other topics. The newsletter covers trending topics in psychedelic science research, regulation and policy. That again is neuralfarm.substack.com. Go there now, like and subscribe and keep up the latest updates.